0: Luckily, that wasn't emotional. Um, I think he just does that to test me. Let's see. No, I'm I'm kidding. Um, I'm I'm really grateful to be here, and as you know, I'm just so grateful uh, for real, just for the generosity and the opportunity to come here. Um, it was not in our plans. <laughs> we we thought Kansas City was a rural area with a lot of cows, which there's parts of it it's still that way. Um, yeah, and it's just been such a privilege to be here. Marta would say the same. She's in the building somewhere with pink hair, um, so you, you'll, you'll see her. <laughs> but getting, getting back to the text, um, you, you probably forgot already what we just heard read, but l- let me just remind you, Jesus said some outrageous things and um, what we heard this morning. Maybe you didn't catch it, so I'll, I'll repeat them to you. The first thing he says is, um, he says, don't fear those who threaten your body, right? Fear me, because I can destroy your body and your soul. Yeah, thanks, Jesus. Right? I mean, that's a pretty harsh thing. The second thing he says is, I'm here to bring war, not peace. That's the kind of thing you don't want to hear from a religious leader, right? I mean, it doesn't sound great. And, and, and then the third thing, and I'm, you know, remember this is in Jewish culture um, in, in the classical age. He says, you must love me more than you love your mother. Uh, that's, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, some people got excited about the mother-in-law part, but no, he's saying <laughs> your mother itself. But like, think about this for a second. These are scary things that Jesus is saying. If, if a religious leader came to you today and said these things, the wisest thing to do would be to call the FBI. It's true. It's true. I mean, it, but, but when we look more closely, I think there's something here that Jesus is saying something spectacular. He's promising a life without fear. A life without fear. And that's really hard to imagine. Um, I, I mean, there's no denying that fear plays a major role in our society today and in our lives uh, social scientist Barry Glasner is famous for his staple book, The Culture of Fear, uh, who some of you may have seen. And he, he argues that American culture is, is, is particularly shaped by fear and increasingly so. And he's not the only one um, that argues this. And in fact, given the current political environment, I'm pretty sure I don't have to argue this uh, too deeply or too detailed, right? We, we see it, we hear it, um, we feel it. Our politicians don't get elected by saying everything's going to be fine. Don't be afraid. Things are getting better. No, 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 what they say is they have to claim that everything is going to break. What they say is, "If I'm not elected, darkness will triumph." Right? I mean, you're kind of laughing, nervous, nervous to me, because that's exactly what they're saying, every single one, and it's not right or left, it's both. I and mean, it's not just in the political realm either. it's everywhere. Why? Because fear is powerful. It runs deep. It gets us to do things that we never would have thought we could do. Um, but it also is very dangerous. In a recent article, New York Times columnist David Brooks uh, wrote this article called The Age of Small Terror. And um, what he talks about is this this increasing fear is hurting us. Um, So so he's framing this in the current climate of constant fear of some kind of attack or loss. And and let me quote what he says. He says, People are more likely to have a background sense that life is nastier and more precarious, red in tooth and claw. They put in the tribal walls and distrust the outsider. This anxiety makes everybody a a little less humane. In other words, this fear, this paralyzing fear um, is causing an anxiety that's literally making us less human. So less humane, it's making us act against what what we're designed for. This is not good. And it's not just a a fear of a terrorist attack or something major that's doing this to us. This fear is everywhere. Think about it for, for a second. It's about losing a job. Losing our health, the approval of colleagues, status, getting a quality education for your children. Losing a member of your family. Being bullied or made fun of at school for your students or for adults at work, right? Not knowing what to answer when you're called on. These fears paralyze us and they define us in many times. And here's the thing, our, our media, our corporations, our leaders, they use it all the time. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. See, see, here here we see Jesus, and he's talking to his disciples. We heard a little bit about this last week, but he's literally sending them into a world where he's saying, Look, guys, um, you're going to face persecution. You you may not be able to eat sometimes. Um, There's going to be conflict. Your family's going to hate you. You you might die. Um, Most disciples, we know that they did die uh, of persecution. So he's sending them into a context of real danger, and he says, But do not fear. You have nothing to fear. And that's his message for us this morning. If we follow Jesus, we have nothing to fear. If you follow Jesus, you have nothing to fear. Now, this is a huge statement. Um, So, I want us to dig into it and and I want us to ask the text three questions. The first is, why does he say this? What's the basis for Jesus saying this? Secondly, how does this happen? How does he do this? And thirdly, what can we expect instead of fear? Um, So, let's get right into it. Why is there nothing to fear? If you have your Bibles, or an app on your phone, feel free to open that to Matthew chapter 10. Um, and we're going to start with looking at verses 26 to 31. But so let's ask this first question. What is, what is Jesus' main argument? Why can he say there's nothing to fear? And it's pretty simple. He actually says, you have nothing to fear here because there's something much greater, much worse that's coming. <laughs> so, so Jesus' most encouraging words are actually terrifying. It's great. Um, it, it's worse than you thought, right? But this is the center of his argument. And if you look at verse 28, that's kind of where where, where he makes this argument very clearly. So let's read that. Um, Matthew 10, verse 28, it says this, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the idea is is simple, there's something greater to fear than the men in power right now who can persecute you. And at the very worst, they can kill you. There's something worse, there's something bigger. There's something greater to fear than death. Um, in, in high school, I, I memorized this poem. It's, it's part of what most students do. It's by Jorge Manrique called Coplas por la muerte de su padre, which as you know, means couplets for his father's death. <laughs> I knew you knew that. I just wanted to, to let you know. And it's, it's actually a, kind of a morning, It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. You can find the translation, um, a poetic translation online that's really good. Um, it's a literary masterpiece from 1476. And, and, and there's a verse that I think is really helpful. So I'm gonna recite this in Spanish and, and then I'll, I'll read kind of a literal translation that I tried to do that's not very poetic. Um, in Spanish it says pues si vemos lo presente como en un punto se ido y acabado, si juzgamos sabiamente daremos lo por pasado, which in English means therefore we look at the present just like a dot. It is swiftly gone and finished. And if we judge wisely we will consider what is coming to have already passed. In other words, this present life is a dot. A dot in the long line of eternity. And you see, remembering this about life is vital to understand what Jesus is saying, but also to live the Christian life. Because look, if Jesus truly was who he said he was, he's one with the Father and has the power to either destroy the body and soul, and he's not separating the body and soul as if there's like more value in the soul or the body, he's saying everything you are. If, he's, if truly he has the power to destroy that or to raise both body and soul from dead in the last day, then that matters a lot more than what's happening right now. He's saying that, disciples, persecution, ridicule, death now, whatever's ahead of you in this life is what a dot, is but a dot, swiftly gone and finished, right? It will soon be ancient past in the light of his eternal glory. That's what he's saying. There's something greater to fear than death. But you see, for modern people, even for Christians in this modern age. This is kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Um, The the, the Canadian philosopher, and I'm going to explain something that sounds philosophical, but it's pretty simple, so I urge you to just listen. Um, There may be big words, but we'll try to define them, because I want to get to the heart of this. Um, There's a Canadian philosopher, his name is Charles Taylor, a great, great philosopher, and he helps us understand why this is so difficult for us to believe. Um, in, In our culture and in our age, other cultures have no problem with this, but we happen to have a problem. Um, And he argues that the predominant way of thinking or frame of thinking in our culture and age is limited by what he calls the imminent frame. Um, And and let me read, another writer summarizes what this means very clearly. He says, imminent frame is a constructed social space that frames our lives within a natural rather than a supernatural order. It is the circumcised space of the modern social imaginary that precludes transcendence. So that was was the clear explanation. Imagine the other one. but but what he's saying is this: basically, the Im- imminent means the things that are around, the things that we can see, touch, and feel. That's what immanence basically means in philosophical language. So the imminent frame is an assumption that there's nothing beyond what we can touch, feel, and measure. Basically, um, the, the, uh, there's nothing beyond the immanent. Uh, all reality, all meaning, all fullness we aspire to in life must be found here, in what's around us. And, and there's no room for anything. From the outside, that's what transcendent means. The, for nothing supernatural, for nothing from the outside. That doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't exist. All our meaning is here. And some of you may be saying, well, I don't feel that at all. Ask your kids. Go to a college class. Read, read the news. This is, this is what we feel as a society. Um, some of you are probably saying, that's exactly how I feel and I struggle with eternity. Um, th- this is what we're talking about, this imminent frame. And, and let me be clear, this isn't something that everyone has thought through in detail. Right? You know, people don't research this or carefully logically work it out. This is something we feel. So, what's around us kind of gives us that message. And, and although it's a feeling, it's real, right? Like, it, 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 feels, it feels immature um, or it feels naive to talk about the transcendent. That's the world we live in in the West. And it's the same in Spain. In fact, most of my Spanish friends that I grew up with, I'd say almost all of them, don't believe, or at least didn't, didn't originally believe, something from the outside. Problem is this breaks down, right? Um, The problem with this imminent frame is there's kind of two things. It's really hard to unequivocally assert and it's very risky to hold on to. So let me just show why very quickly. It's hard to unequivocally assert, like to, to assert with absolute certainty because there's too many things that it can't explain well. I mean, you think about it, it can't explain evil well, beauty, love the innate sense and desire in all cultures to think of and worship a superior being, and the insatisfaction most people find, frankly, with only worshiping for human achievement. It just gets boring after a while. Um, So how do we explain those feelings and desires? And this is a huge philosophical question. This isn't a question that Christians are kind of asking being annoying. This is questions that major philosophers are asking and struggling with. And many have said, you know what? We can't hold on to this. There's something more I can't explain it. We can't argue it, but there's something more. Um, it's hard to uni- unequ- unequivocally, sorry, that's a big word. I should have chosen another one. It's hard to unequivocally assert. It's, it's hard to assert with, with certainty. But secondly, this imminent frame, it's, it's risky to hold on to. Because right? what if we're wrong? We're assuming that someone has analyzed all the data, all the unexplainable. Someone has, if you will, kind of stood outside the universe and seen it all and says, yep, this is everything there is. I guarantee it. So my question is, who is that person, <laughs> right? Well, what human can claim to do this? Is, is, what culture is that person from? Can I trust him? Is it a him? Is it a her? Uh, you, you, you know, who, who can claim to do this? And is that person trustworthy? That's a big risk to take if eternity is at stake. So Jesus comes along and he shatters that frame, doesn't he? because Jesus says, look, I come from beyond this world. I know what's beyond this. And I'm telling you, there's something greater to fear death and he says at one point everyone's going to see this that's what he's talking about in verses 26 and 27 let me read those to you verses 26 and 27 he says so have no fear of them of these men that worry about what's happening now for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known what i tell you in the dark say in the light and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops in other words what i'm telling you now will soon be obvious to everyone let me just say this, Christians, you will not be wrong. At the end, that's what, that's what he's, he's saying this will be clear to everyone at one point. And you see, the, the same lo- logic underlies where he goes on further in verses 29 to 33. He says, look, someone, sees everyone. someone is actually outside of this world, and he sees everything, and he cares. Let me read that to you again, 29 to 33. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. For everyone who acknowledges me, this is Jesus talking, before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. What he's saying is, although this life is a dot, someone cares about that dot. Seeing everything that's happening to you. And he cares about justice and injustice. He cares what's going to happen in the long run. And he's going to make it right. You know, for some people, the hairs on the head are easier to count. But for most of us, that's a pretty considerate number of, of hairs. We don't know, but God knows. He says he sees and he cares. And in the long run, he's going to make stuff work out. This is the reason Christians can be nonviolent because they know that God's gonna intervene. This is the reason you can go out and do this mission, and regardless of what happens, this is the reason we can fight for justice, this is the reason we can care about this dot of a life, because we know that in the long run, God cares, and in the short run, he sees, and he's doing. That's what Jesus is saying here. Following Jesus means understanding that this life is but a dot, quickly to be gone. And if that is true, there's nothing to fear, regardless of what we might encounter. So w- one, way, <laughs> one way I've thought about this, and this may not be helpful for you, is when I was a kid, and I'm gonna hold on to that story, it was just when I was a kid, um, I'd, I'd watch movies and get a little scared, just, just a little bit, um, or, or get really sad. Um, it's, it still happens to me now, but, but not as much, I promise. Um, you know those really good movies that just get you really scared? And, and, and I remember as a kid, I, I'd see these movies, and I'd, I'd get like terrified, and I'd have to remind myself it's a movie. A movie. These actors are still. Tom Hanks is still alive. He makes it off the, You know what I mean? Like, because I was really distressed by this stuff. I mean, in a way, that's what we're talking about. Like, seeing, seeing life. course like a dot, like a movie that's over, and 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 we last throughout it. And another way of seeing is when I get together with my sisters and we'd watch these movies, like in our living room. You know, you may be terrified at the movie, but there'd be a moment maybe when my mom would put her head through the door and say, uh, "Hey, kids, I want to see this room cleaned up by the end of that movie." Um, suddenly the, the little terror of that movie dissipated in light of a huger terror, right? Because the, the movie was controlling my emotions for about an hour or two. My mom, she controls my destiny, right? You, you know what I mean? So that, that, that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. This is, it, 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 it's a small thing. And, and, and of course, the, this example breaks down because Jesus isn't asking us to substitute one paralyzing fear for another paralyzing fear. That's not what he's doing. Many people, that's how they view religion. Many religions are set up in that way. Is don't, don't be afraid of people. Just be terrified of the divinity. It's like, oh, thanks. Um, and 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 you live in this terror. That's not happening here. And the reason we know that is because Jesus is saying this. Remember who Jesus is. He came from God for us. Jesus is preaching repentance because it's true. All those fears that you have about God that you don't measure up, that you haven't lived rightly, that you haven't done what you're they're true. You're not as great as you think you are. You're much worse. And Jesus is saying, they saying, repent for the kingdom is coming. But at the same time, he's setting up his life to exchange his righteousness for our fear, for our sin. That's who's saying this. It's Jesus. That's why it's not about changing one scary fear for another scary fear. It's, it's about changing this fear for an awe and an admiration of the brilliance, the beauty, and the sacrifice of Christ. That's what we're exchanging. When, when we really understand that Jesus, what Jesus is offering, this amazing care, the compassion and grace of God here with us now and forever. See, rather than being paralyzed by fear, we're captured by awe, by love, by beauty. These affections that he awakens in us go beyond this imminent frame, don't they? There's something that goes beyond what we can imagine. And it causes us to worship. It's replaced, our fear is replaced by awestruck awestruck love and worship, and that's what fear of God means in Scripture. So let me ask you this morning: have you experienced this kind of awestruck love and desire to worship? Have you experienced that? Do you want to experience that? I know I do. I would love to live in that mode of being. The problem with that is it doesn't come automatically, does it? It starts, it starts here. It begins by really seeing Jesus, by studying his word and understanding what he's come to do. Um, by trusting his words to be true. But too many things get in the way of that worship, don't they? That's where our second question comes in. So how does God do this? How does God, how does Jesus release us from fear? And here's the answer. He asks us to give up everything else. You see, following Jesus is more than standing in awe. It requires being ready to lose everything, to give it all up. And to make this point, Jesus goes to the number one most valued thing in his time and in his society. He goes to family. Let's read that. This is verses 34 to 37. Look what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies with those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus isn't saying that family enmity is a virtue. That's not what he's saying here. But what he's saying is that to follow him, you must be ready to part with your most deeply treasured relationships. To follow him, you must be ready to part with your most deeply treasured relationships. Loyalty to Jesus comes first. And you have to be ready to lose everything else. And you see, in in his society, family was literally everything. Losing that connection meant losing your ability to make a living, to have friends, to build community, to get married, especially for women. Everything we long for as humans was tied into your close and your extended family. And I know that this morning, some of you come from um, context, some of us come from context where family still has a lot of that weight. Um, and, And you completely understand what we're talking about here. But to be honest, for most of us, family is still important probably, but not at this level. So we have to translate this a little, a little bit. I mean, you think about it, your, your ability to th- survive in life isn't attached to whether you get along or not to your sister, to your mother, right? You can still go out, you can, you can hate your parents and still make a living and still get married. So it's a little bit different. But we do relate to the categories of family involved. I mean, think about this for a second. The losing our worth, our value, our prestige, our name. That's a huge fear. That we have, and maybe this happens by being demoted in your work, or losing a job or a position, um, not getting the grades you wanted, right? Not getting into school you wanted to get into, or the degree that you wanted to study. Um, maybe it's it's tied into never making our spouses or our parents happy, or your children never making you happy. Uh, the, the other fear losing our ability to make a living or survive. This is a reality for us here. Th- this is one of the wealthiest counties. I think it is the wealthiest county in this area. And this is still a very real fear. Um, Many people know that they're not going to be able to make a living for the rest of their life. Something's going to happen. You're not going to make enough. This is a big fear. And I'm not trying to scare you all out of your senses, but this is a fear for everyone. This is a real fear for humanity and our significance, losing our significance. We're never having it. These are big fears. And this is what Jesus is asking Are you ready to lose all of that? Are you ready for all of those to potentially come true? So as you know, um, Marta and I are preparing to go back to Spain. We're in the final stretch. Um, you still have to put up with me a few more months, but it's coming. Um, and, and like any transition, right, it, it, it brings all this scary stuff up. So to prepare for this sermon, I made a list of all of my fears, and I'm not going to share that with you. Um, so th- first of all, there's too many, um, and, and, it, and it's, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty scary and pretty personal. But these things are paralyzing me at times. So, so I made a list of them, and let me just tell you a few of them, just to get an idea and see if you relate. As we think of going back, think, how are we going to make a living? Um, it's a big question. Will I find a place where I have real significance and contribute something useful to the world? Will we, will we still connect with our friends there? Will we make new friends? Will we have friends? Will our marriage survive through this very difficult period? What about my theology? Will I get lost and go way too conservative or way too liberal and lose the gospel in the process and not even realize it? Will I have people around me to keep me from falling? Will we find a church that accepts us and values us? And now it's getting way too personal, so I'm going to stop. But I'm sure you can relate to some of these. Maybe, maybe losing your theology um, isn't a big concern. It should be, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, but these other things, right, they're real. Is my marriage going to survive? Are my relationships going to survive this next phase? Am I going to be able to economically make it through this, this chronic sickness? or this? These are real. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't stop there. I mean, these, these are our treasures. These are the things we really hope for. Jesus takes it a step further. He goes to the ultimate treasure we all hold on to. He goes to our lives. And he mentions no words. Look at verses 38 and 39. He says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And look, taking up a cross here doesn't mean putting up with your husband's obsession with sports um, or, or, or a chronic sickness. It means death. That's what this means, very literally. And he's saying, if you're not ready to be crucified, to die for me, you can't follow me. What a tremendous thing to say. But also, what a profoundly true thing to say. Because look, all these treasures we talk about, significance, good relationships, longevity, health, financial stability, and the objects that we put them in, they can all disappear at a moment's notice. Some of you know this firsthand. They will eventually disappoint you. If your hope is in a perfect spouse and perhaps you find him or her, one of you is gonna die one day and it's gonna be devastating. This is the reality. If your health will decline, The economy will crash at a moment's notice. We all know this. We've seen it happen. All you're holding on to, your worst fear, will probably come true. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying to match the tone of what Jesus is saying here because it's serious. And here's the question he's asking. What treasures are you holding on to? And are those treasures going to last? Are you holding on to a treasure that's actually going to last? A treasure that will endure all the testing, all the difficulties of life, the turns and twists, the heartbreak, the ground-shaking, world-altering events, are you holding on to the right treasure? And for, for some of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, this is a question we need to ask ourselves. Others maybe haven't even considered following Jesus. I, I encourage you, ask yourself this question. What are the treasures I'm holding on to, and are they worth it? Are they going to last? And I'd encourage you this week, take some time. Write them down. Um, it's It's much more emotional. <laughs> and interesting than you would ever think to just write down, think profoundly in silence, what are my treasures? What are the things I'm scared to death of losing? Another way I put it is, what's that one thing, the untouchable thing, right? The thing that is, if I lose that, I don't want to go on living. Write those things down and read them. And ask yourself, am I ready to give this up for God? Am I ready to trust in a different treasure? Because you see, Jesus... Jesus isn't demanding that we just give everything up. In exchange for our paralyzing fears, he offers us a treasure that will never fail. And that answers our third question. What do we expect? What should we expect instead of this fear? And what, what Jesus is saying is an eternal reward. Um, instead of treasures that will be destroyed and disappoint us, Jesus offers us himself. The treasure, an eternal reward that will never be destroyed. See, that's what he's saying. And identifying with him now, in times of certain persecution and probable death for his disciples. He's saying, if you identify with me now, in the life to come, I'm gonna identify with you. I'll acknowledge you, right? That's what he's saying earlier. And he's saying, and y- y- you lose your life now, sure, but you're gonna gain a life that's much greater. At the, at the end of the passage, he talks about this as well, and we'll get to that in a second. He says, you get a reward that no one can ever take from you. That's what he promises in exchange. And boy, that's a better treasure than my own life or than the other things I hold on to. And here's the thing. Jesus is speaking with authority because he knows where he's going next. Jesus, at this point in the Gospels, um, it's very clear that he's aware that at some point in the near future, he's going to be tested. His life is going to be tested literally with death to see if it's true that he is the eternal treasure. And we know that he beats death at that moment. And even more interestingly, think of who's writing this. Matthew's writing this years after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended, and he's putting his life on the line, his his prestige on the line. Remember, this is a tax collector. This is a guy who knows what he's doing, and he's saying, this is true. I saw Jesus raised from the dead. That's why I can write with absolute authority, this treasure is better than anything else that you'll ever find. Jesus is the one treasure that goes beyond death and beyond this light, uh, sorry, this dot of life into the line of eternity. One pastor puts it this way. He says, fear is what you fear. Sorry, fear is what you feel when your greatest treasure is threatened. So when your greatest treasure is Christ and your union with Christ, which nothing can threaten, you've got nothing to fear. But if your greatest treasure is your life, you've got much to fear. If we follow Jesus, if we cling to him as our ultimate treasure, we can give up everything else. We can lose it all because we have everything in him. So will you hold on to Jesus as your ultimate treasure? Will you cling to him and speak of him and let go of everything else because he's worth it? As you think of your answer, remember this. He let go of all of his treasures for you. There's a passage in Philippians 2. It's, it's my favorite, one of my favorite verses, um, or one of my favorite passages, and it says that Jesus, although he was in the form of God, although he was... In in privilege and everything matched with God, he didn't consider it something to be grasped onto. That treasure that's greater than anything we've had talked about today, he didn't consider it worthy of grasping onto, but he emptied himself. That's what it says. He he gave all his treasure, all his his privilege, all his status. He gave that away to be with us and to take on the shape of man and, and actually a slave. That's what the language says in scripture. For our sake, isn't he worth trusting? Isn't he worth giving your treasures to him? Exchange your worst fears for his peace and absolute security. You know, for some of us, um, probably more than we'd like to admit, taking this step is hard to imagine. And, and for some of us, we're, tr- we're trying to figure out, well, what does that mean for me? Does that mean that I have to go, you know, to, to Lawrence or something to preach the gospel and maybe I get killed? Like, wh- what does this mean exactly? And it's interesting because it almost seems like Jesus is anticipating our questions You know, who would have thought? Um, Because what happens next in the passage, it it almost feels like Jesus turns to bystanders. He's still talking to his disciples, but you know when you talk to someone, you're actually talking to everyone else and what mothers do a lot? Um, Well, I told my son. You know, Jesus seems to do this at the end of the passage. Um, and, and, And he points to people that are just bystanders, that are looking on, that are interested, that are wanting something, and he says, here's the way to engage this. Here's the way to cling on to me. Receive me by identifying with my people. Look at this in verses 40 to 42. Whoever receives you, stuck to his disciples, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, the Father. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, that's what he calls his disciples, these little ones, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In the original language, that ending says, no one will be able to destroy that reward. With the same word of destroy that Jesus used earlier to say, the one who destroys soul and body. He's saying, This is eternal, guys. No one can take this away. And this passage is so practical, too, isn't it? He's looking at the bystander and saying, look, here's the first step you take. Receive my disciples. Take my name, identify it. Think about hospitality in the ancient age, or or even today, when you take someone to your home, you're saying something, right? You're saying, I identify with this person. I'm with this person. I'm one of them. Imagine, in a a context of persecution, taking one of these into your home. It means identifying with the body of Christ. As we identify with Christ in in kind of this cosmic way, right, of Christ individually, we're also identifying with his body, and that's so important. Jesus is saying, these are my people. This is where I am, is amongst my people so that's what's next it's identifying and and do we do that well this is hard for me i have to admit because identifying with jesus bodies means identifying with the church historically and identifying with the church in all its forms i was thinking about this earlier Um, the church has done a lot of damage as a church it's done a lot of damage here it's done a lot of damage in spain Um, we've divided into different sections we kind of have color-coded churches almost that's done a lot of damage Are we ready to identify with all of those expressions? It doesn't mean to justify what's been done, but it means to take responsibility for it. It means to identify with Christ, even with all the mess of his people, to identify with them. Are we ready for that? Because this is how Christian life works. First, we respond to Christ's beauty, to his brilliance, his compassion. We respond with awe, with wonder, with love, and with worship. And then we put our hope on him, we make him our treasure, we, knowing that only he has the power to bring us to the end beyond death. And then as we serve one another, we start walking in his mission, right? Receiving his people, giving ourselves away to the world. And as we do this, as we follow Jesus, we have nothing to fear. So in, in the first service, I shared this um, and and Martha, my wife, was sitting there, and she said I, a story came to mind of something I was reading reading yesterday, and, and she wrote it down for me. <laughs> I asked her to read my manuscript yesterday. It would have been better if she had done this yesterday. But um, and it just it just resonated so much. So I just want to read this story to you. Um, she she's been reading the works of of Dr. King, of Martin Luther King, um, and and I've I've read this story before, and it's just a powerful story. But. He was explaining one time he, he got a death threat on the phone. So someone called his home and, and threatened. And, you know, he'd get death threats all the time. But this one, for some reason, he said he felt fear. He felt deadly fear. Um, and, he, and he felt like he couldn't go on. That's what he says. So he decided to quit the very next day. Um, he sat in his kitchen table. It was late at night. And he was trying to figure out how to quit with the least impact possible on all the people that supported him. And then he felt that he needed to leave it to God. Incidentally, this is the incident that Martin Luther King points back to to say, this is where I learned that God was a personal God, and not just a big concept. So he put his head between his hands and he started crying out to God and he suddenly felt peace because God had just taken away his fear. Isn't that powerful? I probably need to do that when I get home. (laughs) And end let me just um read this passage in philippians that i mentioned earlier many scholars believe this was a, this is the oldest passage in the new testament because it was a song or a chant that people would sing early christians and i wonder if matthew's readers were familiar with this song and it gives this complete picture of the beginning and the ending of of, of jesus life and of history so let me read this to you it says christ jesus so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If this is true, if this is the ending, every knee bending down, every tongue confessing that he is Lord, this is the kind of resurrection that he promises for us, for those who follow him, then friends, if we follow him, we have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear, neither in this life nor in eternity to come. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your words. Um, We're scared (laughs) because we realize that this is the real thing, Um, that you, you really do demand everything. God, but we also trust you this morning. We ask you to help us trust you. Help us see you as who you are. Help us see Christ and worship him. And Lord, please help us identify and give up our treasures to you so that we can hold on to the one treasure we know that will last for eternity. Thank you, God, for these words. Thank you for your disciples that listened to them and obeyed. And your spirit led them, Lord, to spread this gospel all around the world, even reaching Gentiles like us, lost in this continent that no one even knew about or coming to this continent later, rather. Thank you, Lord, that despite all the history, of the church and all all the things, good and bad, that's happened, you identify with us still. Even with all our sin, you identify with us, Lord, and you invite us into your family and into your mission. Lord, please help us obey. In your name we pray. Amen.